Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up, and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's producer Harry here. So we've got another billionaire on the show today, and we have Chip Wilson on the show. So for those of you who don't know who Chip Wilson is, he is a Canadian billionaire who made his fortune in the retail industry. He's got over 30 years experience and he's well known for uh, founding companies like West Beach and Lululemon and Lululemon is worth over $2 billion. So he has an absolute fascinating story where he didn't really have a, a grand vision or a plan to scale multiple businesses and become a billionaire. He just started with 300 pairs of shorts and he just was looking to sell them to retailers. So obviously Adidas and Nike are the big players in the sportswear industry, but Chip has taken his companies from nothing and scaled it to similar levels to the big boys in Adidas and Nike. Rob and Chip have a real fascinating conversation on entrepreneurship and this current climate. And obviously Chip, having over 30 years experience in retail, they have a deep dive conversation about the future of retail because things are not looking good, obviously, during this current climate. So if you would like to watch the video version of this podcast, we also have a YouTube channel. So just go to Rob Moore and subscribe and you can watch the video to this interview and all the other interviews we've done. So let's just get straight into the interview with billionaire entrepreneur Chip Wilson. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Hey, it's Rob Moore here, and I am with Chip Wilson. Chip, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Rob. My pleasure. So just before we went live, you were actually saying how much you're really into podcasts yourself. So can you talk about that? Well, I'm in this space of, of learning. Uh, I think this is the third time in my life this year, once when I was 19 and another time when I was 42. And this year, I'm basically taking off and just uh, listening to podcasts, uh, I really like to to understand how businesses have started and run. I find it's like the, it's it's like a mystery, and yet it's a uh, um, <laughs> you know impending disasters at every level. I mean, I, you couldn't you couldn't write fiction any better than than listening to uh, how entrepreneurs start their business and get it going. And then the other part is I'm just listening to a hundred uh, autobiographies this year, business uh, autobiographies, finding them fascinating. So is there any particular, I've, I'm a massive fan of listening to autobiographies. I think when you've got to a certain level of learning how to, I think people's experience of how to via autobiographies is kind of like a, a different way to learn. Are any of those ones you'd particularly recommend? Well, of course, you know, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, you know, I, I really loved how they formed a monopoly. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they had a way of doing business, which was to take one business and then layer another one on it and another one on it. So they're all synergistic with each other. And I think that that's, uh, uh, once you have, 
In other words, if you are in the apparel business, then maybe you want to own your stores, maybe you want to own your manufacturing, maybe you want to own your own e-commerce. You know, it's all kind of the same thing kind of layered on top of each other. Okay, well, I look forward to your progress on those hundred. Are you listening or reading to those? I, I listen to um, uh, nonfiction and I read fiction. Hmm. Okay, yeah, because it would be quicker to listen than read, I'd have thought. Yeah, yeah, especially if I want to get my exercise in. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of climbing of mountains or I go and do the University of British Columbia. They have these big stairs along the cliffs, and that's kind of what I do. Gymnasium, hmm. you know. Yeah, great. So um, right now, obviously with the lockdown, retail has been hit really hard and retail is your experience. It's what you've done. Um, I, I have a friend who's been on my podcast twice. He's a billionaire. He's called David McCourt. And he wanted me to ask you and particular people with hardcore retail experience, how does retail survive right now with so many businesses in retail struggling? Well, I think like anything in Darwinianism is that the the weak will 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 die and the strong will will survive. I think we're definitely seeing that in the stock market. If you look at most of what what I'd call the old school American um, um, retailers, anyone making like um, suits and ties, anybody making like overly fashion stuff, or anything when doing fast fashion um, is is basically half the value it was before and anything in in i would call technical apparel is double the the value it was before i think that um even before covid though i would have thought that retail stores would be moving more into the model i'm not just talking omni but almost where a um, let's say a, a retail store has product they bring it in for two weeks and only two weeks and then they shift it out again. And basically the retail stores become showrooms for e-commerce. And because I, especially in, in products which are tactile or need to be fit properly. And of course you want an e-com return place. And, uh, and then I think you have to add extra services. And I think that could, you know, either be, um, food or workout. Um, I, I really see this model that, well, I see something that's occurring right now is uh, Starbucks in my area in Kitsilano and Vancouver has shut down four small stores and opened up one big one. I see Lululemon Chicago has, uh, has opened up one massive 16,000 square foot store. I think what we're going to see is there almost what I'm going to call the emergence of the small department store, but they're all going to be mono brand. So a store like Starbucks or Lululemon uh, or even Amra, the new company I'm in, will have one large company, uh, one large store, which they can control the, the market from. So disruption, Darwinian times of change. I think most entrepreneurs logically get that that's also opportunity. But when it's real and it's happening to you and there's so much fear there, how do you manage that fear? Well, I think it comes back to what it is to be an entrepreneur and that in uh, being an entrepreneur, always there's always these things going on. And, gra and granted, this COVID is quite a um, what I'd call a setback, but life is all about how you handle setbacks. I think that entrepreneurs survive because they would probably do what they're doing for no money. 
In other words, the mind is working because the passion is there that the mind works on the issues 24 seven. So I think for the, so for somebody that's in fear, it's, it's, it, that's not going to do them any good. Uh, and I think probably people that stand in fear are probably using up brain power from being creative about how to move forward. So they're probably going to die off, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But those that can move that, that fear quickly into choice and creativity about how I'm going to change. And maybe it's even about stepping back two years. You know, it's really, really tough for an entrepreneur to go, my God, I've been doing $2 million this year. And now I have to step back to a million and I have to reset my brain about how, you know, how I pay employees, how I live my own lifestyle, that type of thing. I mean, that just has to happen. Thank you. Um, Felicity, can you just check my mic? Because a few people are saying that the volume is low. If you could just check that. So, Chip, um, how did your entrepreneurial journey start? Because I'm sure you won't mind me saying while you drink the biggest cup of, is that tea that I've ever seen in my life? (laughs) I'm sure you won't mind me saying you've got many years experience under your belt. So can you take us right back to the start? How did your journey start? And then how did it lead to becoming a billionaire? I don't think anyone plans to be a billionaire. Um, I'd just like to say, you know, when I was thinking about this, that um, like really I may be no better than somebody that's actually got a five-star restaurant, which is the most popular restaurant in town. But maybe that's just not as replicable. Um, I think I had a, once you can get a product and you understand how to replicate it, I think that's where the money comes. So it depends on what kind of business you get in. But maybe everything's replicable. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I think that's the key behind it. Anyway, I think that, again, like I was saying, that uh, I got into something I was super passionate about. And my, my dad was a phys ed teacher. My mom was a sewer. And I was uh, my whole life was athletics. And I was a big guy. And um, I think a lot of people just – I think it was just problem solving. I was – I was a big guy and their clothing was not big enough for me at the time. And there wasn't any. So, um, and especially maybe there was for football when you're actually playing football or something, but definitely not when, if I was a big guy and I wanted to go for a run or I wanted to go hiking or, you know, things like that. So as I started to do triathlons um, after my football, I recognized there was an issue there. So I just started making my own clothing, but but then I was going, okay, I'm going to solve the problems because in that time, uh, um, really maybe Adidas or Nike had running shorts, but, but if, when they sewed them together, the seams on the inside of the legs were open seams like this. So after about 4K, my legs would rash. And so I started moving those seams to the outside. And then, you know, and then I kind of went, and then of course people started looking at what I had and recognizing that I wasn't just making nice clothing, but I was making uh, functional clothing that was actually solving issue. And I'd spent a lot of time in Europe, and I really loved the way that Italians, um, you know, even on a frumpy man or a frumpy woman could use seams and lines and tailoring to make people look beautiful. So I, I had this in my mind to, to put these, what I'd call West Coast function with Italian styling together. And, uh, and, um, and so I did that out of passion, out of love, out of desire for myself. And um, it just so happens that that's what the world wanted. 
And how did you scale it so big? Because you scaled it so big. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was an economist at a university, a petroleum economist of all things. And I just, I just really got economy of scale production. And I understood that the more I had to make, the more I made, the more my price came down. So, um, you know, my first 20 years in business were actually I did start in vertical retailing. I, I, by mistake, I, I made 300 pairs of these shorts and I took them around to try to sell them, but nobody would have them. So I had to open up my own store. And back in 19, I guess, 80, that was like revolutionary. And nobody had ever done that before that I know of. Um, I think the, the Gap had been doing it, but they they'd been even buying jeans from other people and doing it where I was doing it all on my own. So, um, so basically I understood that, oh my God, if with one store, I can't really sell enough and I can't make enough to bring my prices down. So then I opened up five stores and then I got into partnership with some guys and then we went into wholesale and then uh, the wholesale really got the volume up and brought the prices down. But they're, you know, but then you run into people don't pay and it's, uh, they, they take too long to pay or they don't, you know, it's, uh, it's a whole different business. I found it very inefficient. And at the end of 20 years, I had two retail stores making a million dollars and I had this international wholesaling business make losing a million dollars. So then as I started to think about, well, um, okay, I got to economy of scale, but I didn't make any money at it. And, um, and so then I had this at the end of the day of West Beach of my snowboard company, I'd made these, uh, uh, first layer pants for women for for underneath the snowboard pants and but i only sold 57 of them worldwide because i made them for like 30 and i um i i wholesaled them for 60 and then the retailers would sell them for 120 and they were just too expensive but i but these women just like hounded me to, to about these pants and i knew they were beautiful i knew they were highly functional for athletics like nothing had ever been seen before so I decided that the only way, but I noticed out of my own retail stores where I didn't have that same wholesale markup, I could sell hundreds of them. And so my thought was, well, let's open up lots of retail stores and put them at $90. And at the price then, kind of like McDonald's hamburgers, and I don't like to make the analogy of that, but you know, you put the price at a certain place and then people will buy millions of them. And that's really how that all came to be. So a lot of people who are teaching entrepreneurship will say, oh, maybe you shouldn't go to university. You know, you should start your business sooner. It sounds like your economics degree really helped you, but I don't want to put words into your mouth, Chip. So um, did your economics de degree really help you in business? And is there an instance where someone should go to university to get a degree and maybe another one where they should start their business sooner? Well, I think for an entrepreneur, it's always when the opportunity presents itself. You know, maybe for Zuckerberg or Gates or people like that, the, you know, I don't think they, they maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to actually see what, see what the opening in the marketplace was unless they were sitting in university somewhere thinking about something. You know, for me, um, I'm a people person and I spent 30 years on the retail floor and I think a university education allowed me to be in communication with anybody that walked in the retail store at any level. Not that I could, I could ask a question of somebody and I could engage and I could be, um, you know, it was part of the brand that I had also. So that's important. 
I think um, definitely my product ended up being uh, through snowboarding and in at um, uh, Arcteryx um, Peak Performance Wilson or Lou Lemon. You name the, the business I'm involved in. It's a lot of it is petroleum based, um, lycra, um, nylon, etc. And to know what the price of oil is and how that relates to the price of my raw material and being able to negotiate has probably saved me hundreds of millions of dollars. Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts for any training that we might run, not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. And is there is there a reason behind what you do that um, drives you to build big companies? So you had you founded West Beach, seventy um, nine, sold it in ninety seven, I think. Immediately yeah. then, is that right? Those dates, right? Yeah, it took about a year off, but yeah, yeah. So you took a year off, and then you founded Lululemon in ninety eight, and then that's another big beast which goes on nearly two decades. So clearly, retirement didn't work out for you. Um, what drives you to build such big companies, or, or, or do they just manifest themselves in a way? Yeah, man, I think. I mean, about two years ago, I bought Ammer with uh, some uh, Chinese partners, and so, like I was saying, that's Arcteryx and Peak Performance and Wilson and Solomon Atomic. Um, you know, a whole a whole raft of uh, incredible brands. Um, it, I, it's because my purpose in life, my purpose. Um, let me see if I can put it off the top of my head. My purpose is to elevate the lives of 20 and 30-year-olds through transformational development inside the technical apparel space. So that's what I do. That's what I get up in the morning to do. So um, it doesn't matter uh, how I do it, it, but I have to be in the business to do it. And um, and I think at a certain point in life, it just I become a person or myself, especially, I become so proficient at one business that uh that it's interesting layering another thought on top of that business and i also i i sometimes put the analogy to to being married for a long time like marriage kind of goes through you know along you know ups and downs and whatever but unless you know what love is like at 18 years you can't really compare it to like 
like having uh, you know a new girlfriend every eight months, which sounds really exciting. You know, it does sound really exciting, but is it as exciting as being married for eighteen years and layering another idea and thought and passion upon that? So my, uh, um, so I think that that's what drives me. Hmm. So this, I think, raises an interesting paradox, and I see this with a lot of um, very successful people. Um, you've talked about all that, which I really get. Yet you sold forty-eight percent stake in Lululemon in two thousand and five, and I think thirteen point eight five percent in two thousand and fourteen. So, can you tell us what drove then selling stakes in those companies? Uh, I'd say a lot of bad advice, and <laughs> I think. I think I was also an older entrepreneur, and I think that people really have to get the age of which they're deciding to do certain things. I'd had my first company for 20 years. I had two children, and I was traveling 300 days a year, and I really wasn't seeing very much of them. And so I got the chance to do life over again. I had, you know, my my wife um, was our first designer at Lululemon. Um, we got married, had three kids, and. Um, three kids under the age of two at one point, And we'd had our Lou Lemon for about, uh, I don't know, about seven or eight years. It was a rocket ship. We were making tons of money. I didn't need to sell for money. Um, the, the business model was phenomenal. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think it proved out by the numbers and, of course, what they paid me for it. I think I originally wanted to sell 30%, but I just had bad advice in my, in my back pocket. Um, um, but the, the reason I sold was because there I am, I'm 49 years old. I, even though I've got a rocking company, I've never taken any, any of the money out to put it in my own pocket. I really have never had any money. Even my 20 years at West Beach was really what I call my 20 year MBA. And I didn't have any money. And it's, it's really scary at a certain point when you're now, I'm 48 years old and I had the opportunity to get some money and put it into like gold bars, so to speak, or buy a house or, you know, something like that. And so I went down that route thinking that the company is worth $25 million and ended up being worth $225 million. I had no idea how valuation worked. And so, um, you know, suddenly in one, one sentence, my whole life changed and, and I thought, okay, well, um, you know, I can still risk if I sell some of my company, but I can now I can put take some to the side and take care of my family. It's really the taking care of my family part that I think is the key. The key. Mm. And you said there was some bad advice you had or bad advice in your bad pocket. What was that? Well, I think I it's things are going so well and the advice and it's good advice for people that aren't in the business, but it was, okay, chip, diversify, diversify. And I think the other thing, you know, we were a $110 million company at the time and people said, chip, you don't know how to run a billion dollar company. And, um, and that's maybe true, but, you know, building it to a 110 million was, you know, people could have said, you know, that all the way along too. Um, but I think at the, the end of the day, Professional uh, management um, has very little 
a knowledge on how to run the business over the initial entrepreneur that understands the subconscious psychology of the customer and why the product is there, the, the one million nuances that can even be brought up in conversation about why the industry exists. Okay. Um, this I found this... For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk, and he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496. 878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. Really fascinating. So, I did some research, and according to Bloomberg Business, um, you were quoted as personally thinking of buying Under Armour in 2015. And now, I always like to check these so called facts. So, first off, is that true? And if that is, tell us about that and why did you or didn't you end up buying it? Well, when at that point I'd lost control of Lou Lemon, so it really wasn't a matter of me, you know, um, um, doing anything. It was more like Lou Lemon, Lou Lemon ended up with a, um, a board of directors that was scared. Um, it was uh, all about safety. It was being run by social media. It had no point of view. Um, it had lost its uh, transformational development and leadership. Um, the, we had, you know, a series of terrible CEOs that the board wasn't really to change. Um, so it was an era is what I'm really trying to get at. Now, the, um, so now, um, what was the question again? I'm sorry, Rob. The question about you were thinking about buying Under Armour. So then really it was certain things I was doing was trying to trigger the board of directors to just take some action about anything. Now, at the time, probably Under Armour had been maybe double the value of Lululemon and then dropped precipitously for some reason. And uh, Lululemon had come up. So for like a moment, Lululemon was worth double, double the value of Under Armour. I thought Lululemon... Uh, well, as part of the board of directors and the poor management at the time, Lou Lemon was not able to take advantage of the men's market, which was coming up to probably end up being about 30% of the size of what women's can never be. But um, so it needed, it, I thought, okay, well, if you could put Under Armour together with Lou Lemon, but you could put the Lou Lemon business model of vertical retailing into the Under Armour model, then you might have something that could compete against Nike and and, uh, and Adidas. But it was really more of a, a driver to have the board of directors think outside of the box and be a little bit more bold in life. Hmm. 
and going back to something you just said, which was you lost control of the company. So um, what did you lose control of and how did you lose control of the company? And what would you say to other people so they don't lose control of their company? Well, I think most entrepreneurs are product brand people, uh, you know, people, people in some respects. They're not really, um, they're not really, I mean, they're up when they go to sell against PE people or I mean, these people are professional negotiators and they can see further down the line about uh, the business side of the business. So in other words, there's the business of product and brand, and then there's the business of finance and public markets and private equity. And this is a realm that the, that the, um, that the entrepreneur really doesn't have any interest in. So they're not interested in, but doesn't know how to, doesn't know it like their own business. So really, you know, to get the right advisors is super important and not, I went with advisors I trusted as opposed to advisors that were um, aggressive uh, negotiating animals. And I think that's, that's the part. So I, in the end of the day, I didn't end up with A and B class shares as most good entrepreneurs can do. Uh, when I sold to private equity, that's when I had to negotiate what the board of directors would look like when I went public because I didn't do that. And I didn't have muscle in my back pocket that I lost that ability. And so I lost control of the board of directors. Therefore, Lou Lemon lost its control of its culture and its leadership ability and its vision. Um, well, I'm going to change it up a bit. We'll come back to some of those points in a moment. But what have you been doing since 2016? Because I um, I tried to do my best research and I tried to go on Wikipedia and then move away from Wikipedia to not just follow Wikipedia. So um, sometimes it takes you on a different um, rabbit warren. But I couldn't really find much of what you've been doing since 2016. And that, and that fascinated me. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I had this opportunity Arcteryx to me in Vancouver, I don't know if you know Arcteryx, it's probably, it, it definitely is the number one technical outer, outerwear, outdoor brand in the world. Um, from a technical point of view, there's nothing better. Like if you go to the top of any mountain, all people are wearing Arcteryx. Um, so um, much like, it's interesting because I had Lou Lemon kind of across the ocean, the water in Vancouver, if you understand how Lou Lemon or, or Vancouver is set up. And I Lou Lemon was becoming best in the world at this thing called yoga. And then with the ability to, to be best in the world at yoga, I knew that the consumer would then allow um, uh, Lou Lemon to move into different areas uh, of the athletic pie. And then across the street, I saw this Arcteryx um, coming up, also being best in the world at this one particular party of the athletic pie. But it, it developed into a wholesale business. And I knew there was no money in the wholesale business, and I knew that was a sunset business. And so I felt like if I could get a hold of it, then I could put that Lululemon business model into it, and then we could bring more of that Arcteryx technology to the world. So as I started looking at it, I recognized that it had been bought like a few years earlier by, I think, Solomon, and then Solomon got bought by Adidas, and then this Amer company out of Helsinki, which was the American tobacco company owned by the student union at in Helsinki University, decided to buy it. And then 
and then um, a con- kind of a con- and then they formed a conglomerate of athletic companies. And so, God, how do I get a hold of Arcteryx? And I so anyway, put in a. I got a banker. I started to go down the road of, of putting a bid in for it, and um, and then lo and behold, a, a Chinese company, Anta, phenomenal company. They're it's easiest described in North America as the Nike of China. They're worth about twenty-five billion and uh, eleven thousand retail stores of their own, and then they own Fila, another fifteen hundred stores, and and altogether they they with me now they own about maybe twelve or thirteen brands. So it's a it's a machine, and we all know where China's going. And if you're in China and you can, you've got a great partner there, you can do some phenomenal things. So um, that's how all that came to be. That's what I've been doing since 2016. So we're going, we're going back, what, 79. You've had like one year break, maybe another year break, but you've just been building companies for, I mean, I was born in 79, Chip. So. <laughs> That's 41 years ago. So is it just people talk about serial entrepreneur? I don't really know what that means, but I think it was almost designed for you. Can, can you take time off? Can you not build companies? Can you not buy companies? Or is it just what you love to do? Well, I think it's about how you manage the companies. And I, I don't think Lou Lemon would have been what it was unless I'd read the, the e-myth, the entrepreneurial myth. And I don't mm. know if I read it, but... Really, yeah, I've had it. on the show, so yeah, I know the book well. Yeah, so you've got to build a company, so you're going to get hit by a bus, or yeah, the entrepreneur actually wants to go on holidays, or actually wants to have time, but it's more about controlling of life. So I always set things up so that I have incredible processes on how to do things. So operating principles about how to run the business and documentation as such that. I can step back from the business and the business can run itself. So the, the more I, I think Lou Lemon succeeded so well because I am so good at that and kept um, stepping back after and delegating and putting myself above where I had the work to do that actually I could see five to seven years in the future. And that's really, it's most of that is brain power, brain thinking. It's not like physically doing anything. It's, it's the vision, the concepts, the purpose, the, you know, where is the market going and directing people into that area. And then, of course, compensation of people and having them you know, operate as entrepreneurs is really important to, to, to having a life that an entrepreneur wants to live. Mm. So a few people are asking the book, so I'll just shout it out again. It's called The E-Myth. Uh, some people didn't hear you say that. So Michael Gerber, The E-Myth. Sure. I interviewed Michael quite early on on my podcast, probably four years ago. Um, so I like to ask everyone different question, same concept, different wording. Um, work-life balance. So um, you talked about building an organization, maybe having it well-systemized, being able to step up a layer. Um, each time. Do you have good work-life balance? How do you see work-life balance? Did you Are you the 15-hour-a-day entrepreneur or are you the, the thinking entrepreneur? Or what are you? Well, the whole, to give you context, the whole thing of balance came up at probably at maybe about 2000, 2001. And I think it had a lot to do with, um, again, women coming into the, wor- into the working place. Suddenly, there were 60% of graduates at a university that were women. Though, so it moved from 30 to 60 quite rapidly. And 
they came in and I think the press told them that they could work uh, 18 hours a day and have a family and do all these other things. And, and I think that, I think women really got suckered to that. And so it became very stressful for them. And, um, and so what I, I saw was you'd end up with New York, Wall Street women that were working 18 hours a day, but they weren't dating. They were never going to get married. They, and so they dropped out and they dropped out looking for the balance of life. And, and then because they were type A Wall Street, they became type A zend out. And so they also weren't doing anything. My, my bottom line is that balance is really about choice and it's choice in the moment. Choice is though you have amnesia and you don't know anything of your past and what do you want to do that moment? I think, I think the, there's a type of person that's, that wants a house and so they're going to work like 18 hours a day. They're going to put everything to the wayside because their goal is to, is to buy that house. And they're going to be at work like and, and making it happen. For the next person, it's going to be about maybe they want to do triathlons and maybe they want to train, you know, four or five hours a day. So their work is on hold and they go and they, and they, and they, that happens. So what am I saying about choice and about goal? Where do you want your life to be? And balance is definitely not between health and business and family. It's whatever you choose, whatever you choose it to be. Hmm. The freedom to choose is, is what balance is. Okay. Um, conflict. Uh, how, how do I even start with this? Um, I'm a bit of a softy chip, mm-hmm. and any conflict or thick skin or um, you know, defending myself or not allowing myself to get bullied or, you know, having hard negotiations or whatever. I had to learn that through business. Otherwise, I was just never going to be a business person. So have you got any tips on handling conflict, dealing with conflict? I mean, you've had conflict at the board level, I think, or you must have had being as successful as you are. So yeah, any tips? Well, I, I think I'm a lot like you, Rob. I mean, I'm a people person. I'm also what I'd call the most trusting person in the world. So what's great about it is that that's got me a lot of things in life. And it's also got me in positions where other people could, who, who understand people like us can easily take advantage of us. So you're right. I mean, inside, you know, business is conflict to a great extent. It's always there and everything's negotiations, everything, even with, your executive assistant things are negotiating, you know? So I think that, but in big negotiations, if I had to do those things over again, I think the idea is to, is to spend more time finding the right person to have in your camp. That isn't your necessarily your friend, but that person that just loves to negotiate. And, and there's a woman like Vicki Medvick at the university of Chicago. That's a, world-class negotiator and and she teaches there but you can also hire her to help you out in the boardroom i i wish i would have had more of a you know one of those new york you know gruff lawyers who you know was like you know on my side who could help me see what other people were doing to me so i think it's inherent on the on the entrepreneur to be responsible to themselves 
to make sure you have people around you that can handle your weaknesses, who can supplement your weaknesses. Definitely mine are the same as yours. Mm. Okay. And how would you define an entrepreneur? Well, I used to define it as a joke, as someone who's too incompetent to do anything else. (laughs) And I think, you know, after selling West Beach and being an entrepreneur for 20 years, I recognized that I couldn't really, no one would want to hire me. One, I wasn't very successful at that 20 years, but I had a lot of experience. But, you know, no, you know, so I, so then I was forced to be an entrepreneur, basically. Um, But I think an entrepreneur is somebody who has, an idea and sees an opening in the marketplace and couldn't stand going to their deathbed, not seeing if it worked or not. I really like that. That's definitely got to be an Instagram quote there. I love that. Um, Philanthropy. It's a subject which, of course, many billionaires are passionate about. And there are also many critics who say, well, no one should have um, a billion dollars or five billion dollars or however many so i'm going to chuck two or three questions in one go here chip if you don't mind um how important is philanthropy to you and what would you say to people who say that no one should be a billionaire and have billions themselves well let's take two questions at a time the first one is philanthropy quite frankly i wouldn't do any philanthropy i think it's a scam top to bottom but let's figure out, like, why is philanthropy there? It's, and a lot of it is PR for people. But the tax system is set up, especially in the U.S., not so much in Canada, where, um, like, let's say, like, I start a company and my shares are worth 0.01 cent. And then the company becomes super valuable and I want to buy a house. So I cash in some of those shares. Well, if I cash in those shares now, the value of those shares is $100. So there's a massive tax bill. So in order to lower the tax bill, you end up we people end up setting up a foundation to put money into, and then they become philanthropic. So they're kind of like forced to become philanthropic, which is okay. But what I don't like about it is it takes the entrepreneur away from their business. And that they're because now they have two businesses to run. And philanthropic businesses can be way tougher to run than a entrepreneur business you're dealing with volunteers and it, it's 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 messy and you, so but if you sat back and looked at it you went if you had if you had that entrepreneur and you let him just keep the money in the business then he could grow the business exponentially and he'd employ x number more of people who are then paying taxes he's exporting goods to other countries so foreign currency is coming into the country, elevating the value of the dollar, allowing people to buy more. It's just like, that is by far, far more efficient way of operating. I think to put, because already we have a government that taxes us to, I think, way, way too, basically the government is saying, Hey, we're going to tax you because we think you're too stupid to know what to do with philanthropy money. So, you know, Trudeau taxes us in Canada and then they support like Africa or Syria or this or that or the other thing. So we're already paying for it. So why diminish the brightest brains in your country 
um, by taking money out of their hands that could be elevating the economy for everybody. That's the best philanthropic thing a country could possibly have occur. Mm. So then your second question was? Um, there's people in the UK, probably across the world, um, critical. No one should be a billionaire. No one should have a billion pounds or dollars or five billion. That's just too much. Mm. What do you say to that? Well, I don't think, again, I don't think anyone plans to become a billionaire. But I think that, I kind of put it this way. You look at government now and you look at who's running government and you have people that are, I don't know, maybe they make half a million dollars a year and they're running the biggest corporations in the entire world. But you're, you're ending up with people that are professional political people or they're professional at, you know, in Canada, we have an ex-drama teacher. You know, uh, someone who's never run business, whose father was a politician, they're political animals, but they have no idea how to run a business. And so the question is, is do you want somebody running your government that can add triple the value to it because they know how to run the business? So everybody has got a lot of money. Or do you want an incompetent fool running your your government so that you have all these social things are all taken care of and everybody's poor. Now, so if you want the economy to run, do you want to put the money into the hands of people that know how to leverage it and multiply it for the good of everybody? Or do you want to give it to somebody who doesn't know how to do anything with it and squanders it and, and end up with an inefficient company, country? And I think you only have to go to lotto winners, people that win the lottery. The only people that buy lottery tickets are those that don't know how to run the money. And you look at the percentage of those that are like flat broke after two or three years. This is basically what people are saying that nobody should be a, a billionaire. And I think those people are, let's call it, they're, they're stupid. They just don't, they don't understand how the world works. They don't know how economies work. They, I mean, and they feel... Like the only way, because they're incompetent at being in business, the only way they can get at that money is actually to have, to get in collusion with the government, to tax people that know what to do with it, to take it away from it, to give it to them. So they can just sit in their ass and play video games. <laughs> Don't hold back or anything, Chip. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> ah. Well, you know, like so, so people with social media, people are so nice now. Nobody's actually saying the truth anymore, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I agree that I think there's a lot of people who make these comments who don't know how economics work. Um, they don't understand that um, very wealthy, successful people or business owners generate huge amounts of money in tax, generate jobs, create lots of local economy. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I can't remember how many different ways we're taxed in the UK, but I think Mark and I have found a good dozen ways we're taxed before we take any of our own money. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they just don't get that. And I think it's nice when people like you will um, not hold back and, you know, speak some truth. So um, I, I think also social media is, is a bit full of people who we want to be seen to be do the right thing and you've got to have your charity here and you've got to, you know, be seen to be um, ethical with what you're doing. And of course, everyone wants to be that. But at the same time, um, do you think it's okay to want to build wealth for yourself? Do you think it's okay to want to 
um, you know, have lots of money? Is, is, is making lots of money a crime of humanity? Well, I think it's a bad analogy I'm going to give, but if a shark doesn't keep moving, it dies. And um, so I'm not saying that, you know, the business or an entrepreneur is a shark, but I'm trying to say more like, like if, if, if people don't move forward, they die. So as a human being, if we're not constantly learning, and there's huge correlations between consistently learning when you get older and and your lifespan. So I think it's impossible to get to a certain point and go, okay, I'm going to stop now. You know, I think you can do that if you're a union employee and you hate your job and you get to 65 and you can't wait to like live a life that you've always wanted to live. But that's not it for an entrepreneur, for sure. I think that, um, and and so when people say, okay, well, why why are you going for more money? I don't think anyone's going for more money. I think it's like layering an idea on top of an idea and being excited to get up in the morning and making something of the world and making something of myself and seeing if these thoughts and processes I have, uh, um, you know, can can make can make everything like like easier and cooler and people want it and it's exciting and you know all those things that come into play money has very little to do with it Mm. okay so let's change tack away from that what are your three hardest business lessons chip Mm. well i think we've talked about one is that i didn't get a and b class shares in my company to be able to control the vision and culture of the of lululemon i think Consequently, it's only in my mind, it'll only be worth half the amount it, it is. I mean, my, of course, as the founder, I have a different, much different vision than what it came out to. So that would be my major, my first big mistake. Um, have I made other ones? Um, not, it's hard to say as an entrepreneur that that they're mistakes because it's more like learning experiences. It's impossible to go through business without all sorts of things like that. So mistakes, it never, other than that one, it never really shows up for me as a mistake. What about a lesson? What about a big lesson? Um, well, I think the, the lesson when I had West Beach and I went out of vertical retailing and went into wholesaling, I, the lesson there was that wholesaling is a is a it was a business even I knew then that was fraught with all sorts of problems. Granted, it gave economy of scale production, but it um, I knew somewhere it just it wasn't efficient. Anyway, the what I learned about it is continuing to move to vertical is is the way to go, and as of course, even as I got into Lululemon in 2007 or 8, we moved into e-commerce. It was another way of going vertical and missing the middleman. I think that was, you know, probably the big lesson and probably the the thing that made me my money in my life was was understanding that. Um, I think, um, um, you know, I, I mean, I've had probably... 10,000 interviews in my life. I mean, I'm being a little facetious there, but, you know, um, when I think when social media came into being, I didn't really understand the, the power of, um, the power of it 
from a point of view of there's just people that live for gossip and live for uh, false information, false news, uh, for disasters, for, um, you know, that type of thing. You know, that drama. Yeah, the Amelia is looking for it. And I think you can see it even if you look at the value of what you see on TV with e-entertainment and things like that. I think I think these are kind of the, the bottom dregs of, of the world of media that's couched itself in news, and but it's really just entertainment. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the world is confused by it. And I definitely got caught in that once. And, um, and so anyway, I, I think that was a, a mistake on mine was not really realizing that how the National Enquirer from the 1990s had moved into digital social media and what the power of that is through digital. When you say you got caught in it once, can you explain what that was? I, I made a quote that um, because um, I couldn't figure out why, why Lululemon pants were having a uh, quality issue. And... Um, so I was asked about it, and I said, "Well, some women just don't, um, you know, belong in 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 the pants." What I didn't realize at the time was that um, women were buying two to four sizes too small because they wanted they wanted an inexpensive way of doing having Spanx pants. In other words, for stomach control and body control, they wanted to form their lower body like bras were doing for their upper body. And I was making an athletic pant, and they were buying it for, for looks. And, uh, and so the, the, the integrity structure of the fiber and the sewing wasn't able to match what, uh, um, what women were, you know, they wouldn't tell anybody that's what they were buying it for, but that's what they were buying it for. And I wasn't astute enough to understand that yet. So, I mean, the interpretation of that, of course, is that I think all women are fat, which is the stupidest thing in the world. I think that I built probably the number one world's uh, number one world's woman's company, and we probably had 95% women working and uh, half of our board of directors. And, you know, I think that was just, um, you know, the ability of, uh, of Bloomberg to, um, you know, want to leverage something for sensationalism to sell advertising to stupid people. Hmm. Okay, so we've got one more main question, then we'll do a quick fire round, Chip. You can ask to answer them as quickly or as slowly as you want, but we'll, um, I've got sort of seven or eight more quick fire ones. Um, you had the role Chief Innovation and Branding Officer from my research. I love that. I love branding. I love innovation. I find them fascinating subjects. So um, what, what are innovation and brand to you as a definition? And can you give us maybe some tips on how we become more innovative and build a brand? Well, there's a big difference between change and innovation. Uh, Change is something that's incremental. And I think it's just something people naturally do in business from year to year. I think innovation is, is totally changing the landscape of what you have. And I, I think it's, uh, for me, it's, I wake up in the morning and again, I pretend to have amnesia and I go, if I was to compete against myself today, how would I, what would I do? So it doesn't keep me, I'm not shackled by the past. I'm not shackled by what I'm already doing. And I become, my brain then opens up to go, okay, so where's the future? And um, 
even to the point of not getting money or people wrapped up in things they're already doing. I think Steve Jobs is really good at this too. I think to to be able to cannibalize yourself and move into into the future and give up things that are actually making money. Um, I, I don't even know if I got around to answering your question, Rob. <laughs> Try well, no, I like it. I want to. I'll jump on that quickly because I heard a definition from someone about disruption and innovation being knowing what your future customers want and not being too attached to your existing customers to find out who your future customers are, which I think might be saying the same thing because you you can be very attached, can't you, to your existing customers, your existing business model in the existing way, but actually tomorrow's customer might be a much bigger opportunity. And when you say cannibalize yourself for the future, I guess that's saying something similar, is it? Yeah, I think it's why companies have COOs. Their job is to run the existing business, and then the CEO should be, really be in the seven years in the future and directing the company in you know from a from a different level. They're both critically important because the CEO is making the money in order to make the seven year journey in the future occur. Um, but they're two different ways of thinking about about it. And it's just not innovation in product, it's innovation in processes, logistics, e-commerce, business models. Um, mm. All these things are, are part of innovation. Yeah. And how does an entrepreneur predict that seven-year future? I mean, Steve Jobs seemed to have a almost um, a sixth sense, didn't he, for what his customers wanted well into the future. I remember I had that HTC phone with the little toggle that you dropped and you lost all the time. And people saying, oh, the new iPhone's coming out and no one wants to use this toggle. And it was like he could see the future of what his customers wanted. That must be a learnable skill for entrepreneurs. Um, Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I think if I looked at it, I think it's more. I think it's more of a genetic skill. I think that people have, you know, like I have five boys, and I can see that they're all being raised exactly the same way. But they're five in, incredibly different children in every way, and it had nothing to do with the way they're being raised and how they think and is is all set into them the minute that the egg and the sperm come together, and mm. so. Um, I would say that everyone is, nature wants everyone to be super valuable in life. And I think for entrepreneurs, they're given this um, ability to probably uh, shut so many things down in the brain, like even remembering people's names and birthdays, you know, what's going on in the present and be, and be into the future, like going, oh, like I see that. We've got an electric car. Oh, now, what is that going to mean to the future? Well, oh, there's going to be no noise in the city. So if there's no noise, then will there be more people run over by, more bicycles run over by cars, more pedestrians killed? Do we need larger emergency rooms? Do we need then more hospitals? But, you know, like things that, you know, I think that's the way the entrepreneur mind works. And I think that for me, I know I'm, I'm, vast amount of reading and vast amount of listening. And when I hear three things that are correlated within a week, then I jump on it right away because I know that that something is occurring. So in yoga, I would have gone, I saw a little rip off thing on a telephone post about the first yoga class I'd seen. I 
heard two women talk about yoga in a coffee shop. I, I read an article on yoga that, that one week and I went, okay, yoga is where it's going. And so that, that's, I think the entrepreneur also has, has to have the, the ability to take action. Because as we know, many, almost many people have ideas, but very few people take action. Mm. Okay, so let's do the quick fire round then, Chip. Um, what's your biggest win and your most epic fail? Well, my biggest win would have been meeting my wife, Shannon, who I hired as my first designer at Lou Lemon, who I think was iconic in the look of Lou Lemon. And then, of course, we've had 18 years marriage now and three kids. Uh, I think that's my, my epic win. And, um, my epic failure. Yeah. My epic failure is po- is not being able to fulfill on the, on the dream that I had for Lululemon. What one thing should every entrepreneur know about money? Um, that, well, I go back to when I was like a teenager and my friend's father is Leon Libin, a very nice Jewish man, who's told me that cash flow, Chip, cash flow, two most important Jewish words. And it all stuck with me very clearly. But I think inside of that is, is that if you don't, if you can show people you don't need money, then money is readily available and very cheap. And if you do need money, then you, then money becomes suddenly very expensive and very hard to get. Mm. So for all those people who probably don't really understand economics and capitalism, some of those people we referred to earlier, could you give us a, a basic, very short definition or lesson on how it works? On, on capitalism? Yeah, or, or you know, uh, economics and the free markets and entrepreneurship all rolled into one. I know that's a hard question, but give it a go. Well, I think it all comes down to supply and demand. You know, there's if there's something people want and there's no supply of it and the demand is great, then the price that you can get for that product is very high, which makes it easy to go into that market to uh, to develop something because people will pay a high price for it. On the other hand, if uh, if there's um, if there's no demand for it, then there's no point in making it and it's not going to do you any good. But now it comes back to the McDonald's hamburger thing. If you want to uh, sell billions of what you have and make a little bit off each, you could make McDonald's hamburgers. If you want to uh, uh, sell $20 hamburgers made out of prime rib beef and, um, and the best organic products, then maybe you need to just open up a restaurant. It depends on what your product is. Anyway, you, you, you've, you've opened up something that could really go on for 15 days, and I think I just have to stop. <laughs> okay. We did say quick fire, so we'll move on from that one. Um, if you could spend a day hanging out with three people, they could all be together for a day, or you could have a day with each of them, who would those three people be and why? Well, I think it would be Anne Rand, would be uh, a writer from the, 19th, from the 20th century who wrote uh, – Atlas Shrug and the Fountainhead. I, I think these uh, these books are are essential for entrepreneurs. Um, I think Jim Collins, who wrote the book Good to Great, 
would be another really interesting person to have there. And then, um, you know, I think inside of that, it might be somebody like Elon Musk, somebody who's just going for it, you know, just going for it. And I think that that, uh, that would be a fascinating dinner. What's the best advice you can ever remember receiving? Um, <laughs> um, well, I think it's, it's from my dad, and it's, uh, it had to do with a, a swim race I had once, which was to came to the end and, or to the start, and he said, you know, Chip, just go full out. Don't, don't, don't go slow at the beginning and fast at the end just to look good. So you go full out, give it a hundred percent, die in the middle of it if you have to, but do that. And I, and I got a, and I, and I broke a record, right? you know? So I think what I learned from that is, um, in life, I never, never want to go be on my deathbed, not giving something a hundred percent, because if I only gave 99% and failed, I would have always wondered if I'd given that 100% if I would have broken a record. And what's the worst advice you can ever remember receiving? Diversify. Diversify out of what you know. Um, is there any one thing in the world that you'd like to change? Um, well, I think it is social media. I think social media has allowed for polarization of people, religions, cultures, races, political um, uh, realms. I actually think, uh, I think Trump is actually the perfect president for the United States right now because I think he's a function of social media. You know, the 144 um, unit uh, Twitter, which I think he became famous for out of, uh, out of his, out of his uh, TV show, allowed him to be somebody that could avoid the um the press and go right to the people and i know the press doesn't like it and um although i think they've done very well out of it but um um i'd say that if there's th one thing i'd want to change it's somehow the opening in the marketplace right now is somehow trying to figure out how to bring real news to people and actually, what you're doing right now, Rob, may be it. The 144-word character thing isn't working. Social media isn't working. There's not mm. anything in it that's not a lie um, and impossible to read. And anyone who reads it and thinks it's the truth is an idiot. And so I think longer version podcasts may be the future of real news. Mm. I'm glad you said that, Chip, because I think... A lot of people like yourself who are very successful, we'll put, put that in quotes because that's individual def definition, um, will come on podcasts like this because they're not going to get soundbited. Right. They're not going to get misquoted. They're not going to get taken out of context. Um, and that's the feedback I'm getting a lot more and being able to have honest conversations and not be in a rush and not need the quote and to be able to explore debates and we've had a debate from both sides of the fence you know sort of um you've done quite a pro-capitalism um stance here but you know you're not fully one-sided and um i think that those conversations are really important where people don't feel like they're going to get tricked or man manipulated um and yeah I, I i i like to see 
uh, a shift away from, I'd like to see an anti-soundbite culture. Yeah. Because I know people who've bigger, be, built bigger social media channels than me doing what I do because they've been, been more racy and more controversial and more polarizing and they use clickbaity headlines. And I'm, I'm not knocking them. That's their way. But what I guess what I'm trying to do is create longer, deeper, more meaningful, balanced conversations. Like I'm really pro-capitalism, really. It's worked for me. But I also realize, you know, it's, it's not, you don't get capitalism everywhere. And, and you know, not everyone, everyone has the same access to capital. And I get that there are oppositions of it. There are even people on this live who are making these kind of comments. But I would try and encourage these discussions and debates so that we can educate each other. Um, and I just would, I just like to say that, that I think it's really, really great that you're the, um, maybe we move from soundbite coaching. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, it's always aligned by, um, the guy that, uh, Mickey Drexler, that had Jay crew. He says, I'm too old and too rich to care what people think anymore. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And that's, and- I do care what people think. And I know I have to be responsible for what I say and how people interpret it because, People interpret everything I say through the lens of their life, their experience in life, their education in life. And, and uh, ultimately, even out of this show, people will have their own visceral reaction to what I say, you know, because they've had different experiences. Mm. So if there was one person that you would pause all the other podcasts you listen to in the gym and you would listen to on this show would it be Hmm. that's a good question i i really think bill gates is one of the best spoken best read people in the world um i'm really impressed by him i wish i wish i had uh you know if i wanted to play tennis in indian wells you know i could probably you know, have that opportunity. I'm just not willing to play tennis in Indian Wells. <laughs> so that's who I would go for. I okay. think we'll just scratch the surface of what he knows. Mm. Mm. Right. Final one. Uh, and that is this podcast is called the disruptive entrepreneur. So what does the word disruptive mean to you? Um, I think it's a willingness to do and risk what others aren't willing to do otherwise you can't the word disruptive can be mixed in with a whole bunch of different words but if you're using that word then i think that it has to have a um i if we go back to the entrepreneur almost you can tell every entrepreneur that's come up with their idea everyone tells them they're stupid and it's wrong and it'll never work and um and so so then when it's successful people call them disruptive and it can that's a good disruptive i guess as opposed to a kid that's got adhd that's in the room you know in a classroom is who's making it hard for everyone else to learn um so using it in terms of this i'd say it's uh what other people probably makes other people uncomfortable i think that's a great way to end do you have anywhere we can follow you chip have you, um, do you know, do you um, do social media? Have you written any books? Is there anything we can um, learn more from you? 
Well, I, for entrepreneurs and for people that like uh, that want to know uh, the world of the athletic apparel business, the whole athleisure business, et cetera, I wrote uh, the book Little Black Stretchy Pants. It's available on Amazon and, um, you know, audio or, or, or Kindle. And then um, uh, you can go to chipwilson.com, you know, to read up about different things and, and other, probably listen to other podcasts or other uh, uh, interviews that I've, that I've done. Well, um, you said earlier you, you listen to podcasts. Um, are there a couple you like that you might want to say? Yeah, I, I really like um, How I Built This by mm. Roz on NPR. Uh, because it is, it's, it's, but maybe 50, 60 stories of different brands, different people that have started businesses. And, uh, and that's probably the, the, probably the number one thing I probably listen to more than, and otherwise, I, as I was saying earlier, I'm listening to autobiographies this year. So those are yeah. the things I'm listening to. I mean, people ask this to me a lot and, um, I often don't get the chance to say this, but I love recommending stuff that I like. Um, and I don't, there's um, Reed Hoffman has Masters of Scale. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And um, too much advertising, too much. Yeah, to it. I couldn't. I'm, I'm looking for some meat, and there was too much sizzle. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's a that's a good. I mean, I don't run any ads on this podcast. Well, when I say I don't, I think I've run six short ones for Blinkist, who I love, out of 540 something episodes. Um, and I, I, I really like Seth Godin and I had him on my show and I listened to his podcast when it went live in the first episode out, I think two or three ads at the start. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. And it's normally only English people who hate advertising. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I like Reed. I like what he's got to say. Cause I think he's quite contrarian. Um, my, trailblazers. I think it's Walter Isaacson who wrote Steve Jobs autobiography. That's I like that podcast. That might be worth one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe I had another thought, but it's it's kind of flickered past my. Oh, the other one I'm listening a lot to is uh, Peter Diamandis, who runs Singularity University, mm. uh, and has uh, has written a couple of books, Abundance and Bold, about. I mean, just the very very opposite that everything you see in the left wing, you know, democratic news, which is the world is falling off the side of a cliff. You know, like. For him, technology is taking care of everything, and we're moving in this we're in an exponential world, and mm. really fun to listen to. His book, Get Abundance, I really loved that. That, was, that really opened my mind up. That was a good one. Chip, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, one more final thing. You said before we went live that I was very good looking. Can you say that again to everyone, please? <laughs> Are you good looking, Rob? <laughs> ah, thank you, Chip. Oh, that was my mic. Chip, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Great piece. Bye-bye. Cheers.